Hey, it's Luke Burbank. Welcome to LiveWire. This week, we're heading off the beaten path to Pendleton, Oregon, to learn about sheep ranching with June Colony. Well, mating is not a problem. Keeping them from mating is a bigger problem. Making art with painter James Lavador. I, I think that painting is a way of harvesting like something from the land itself. And regrettably for your ears, yodeling. I need a All right. <laughs> Which I learned is way harder than you think it would be. Plus, we've got the Rome Schooled podcast and music from Rod Bonifer. My yodeling aside, I promise, we've got a great show for you this week. So let's get it started and head over to the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton. From PRI Public Radio International, it's... Live Wire! Recorded in front of a live audience in the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton, Oregon, it's Live Wire! With historian Keith May, sheep rancher June Colony, artist Jake Lavador, Jim Byrne and Dana from Rome School Podcast, music from Rod Bonifer and our fabulous house band, and now the host of Livewire. He left the beaten path years ago, which is how he ended up here, Luke Burbank! Thank you, Jason Rouse. Thank you, everybody here at the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton, Oregon. This is very exciting for us to be here in Eastern Oregon. Our theme this hour is off the beaten path because Pendleton is to some degree a little bit off the beaten path. It's known regionally as the home of the Pendleton Roundup, which is one of the best rodeos in America. Pendleton is also known worldwide for the Pendleton Woolen Mills Company, maker of blankets and apparel and all kinds of amazing stuff. The thing is, if people are hearing this radio broadcast in other parts of the country right now, and they heard me say Oregon, and they just thought, oh, they're kind of in Portland, right? I want to be very clear, this ain't Portland. <laughs> like. I saw, I saw somebody on the street in Pendleton today wearing a t-shirt, proudly declaring that they were a citizen of the state of Eastern Oregon. <laughs> so there's a different world out here. I have not been through Pendleton in about 30 years. Last time I was here, it was on a family road trip. We were going from Seattle, Washington, where I grew up, to Baker City, Oregon, which is not too far from here. We were on our way to Baker City because somebody there had told my parents that if they went to Baker City, brought their five kids with them, they could get a free, out-of-tune, upright piano. <laughs> now, this was before the internet, but even so, it is mystifying to me that even then my parents had not gotten the memo that an out-of-tune upright piano was not the kind of thing you needed to go 800 miles round trip to get. You walk down any street in America and there are four people trying to get rid of an out-of-tune upright piano. It would not have been a terrible plan if the vehicle we were using to get to Baker City, Oregon was even remotely up to the task. 
but it wasn't. It was my dad's work van, which was a 1972 Ford Econoline <laughs> with tremendous issues. <laughs> Problem number one, no air conditioning. This was August in Eastern Oregon. It did have those windows that open exactly one inch. So that was zero help. Also, because this was my dad's work van, he had taken all of the bench seating out of it so he could put, like, tools and lumber in there. So for the road trip, he just piled a bunch of stuff in there and put a large futon on top of all the stuff. So the whole back of the van was a giant bed that we kids, five of us, would ride on. We thought this was the most awesome thing of all time. <laughs> Looking back as an adult with a kid of my own, I realized that the ratio of functioning seatbelts to human lives in the van was suboptimal. <laughs> Two working seatbelts for seven people in there. Also, this was a van that you could only drive for about an hour to an hour and a half before you would have to pull over, wait for a half hour for it to cool down <laughs> so you could put water in the radiator <laughs> to continue driving. I want to point out, this was on the way to Baker City. This was not even the part we were towing a thousand-pound piano home. <laughs> so we go on this trip. We get to Baker City. And actually, the people who had the piano, um, they, ha they lived on a small farm, and it was actually so cool. There were these rolling hills. They had an orchard there. They made homemade ice cream for us and put blackberries on it that they had picked from their yard. And this blew my mind that you could just like make ice cream at your house. <laughs> I was a very sheltered religious kid and I didn't know the origins of a lot of things. I didn't know where babies came from and I didn't know where ice cream came from <laughs> until that day. I still not fully processed that revelation. So we hung out there for a couple days, had a really nice time, got the piano on a trailer. Uh, and we went back, on the way back, we actually went up through Washington State. We did this really big loop, and we visited all of these friends of my parents in different places, and we would, like, play with, you know, their kids, and we would camp sometimes, and sometimes we would stay in these unbelievably sketchy motels, <laughs> which we as kids didn't even notice because we were just, all we cared about was, is there a swimming pool? <laughs> like, we would have slept in the swimming pool if they let us. People were probably being murdered two rooms down from where the Burbank family was staying. We didn't care. The Pony Express had a swimming pool, and we were excited about it. So we do this whole sort of loop. We end up getting home. We get the piano into the house. It takes like eight guys from the church to get the piano up the stairs and into the dining room. But there it is. And something really surprising happened, which is that all of my sisters, I have four sisters, became totally obsessed with playing piano. I will mention my parents never got the piano tuned. <laughs> the kind of people that will drive 800 miles for a free upright piano are not gonna blow money on a professional tuning <laughs> of the piano. My sisters got so into playing the piano, there was not one day that went by, the rest of the time we had that thing, that one of them wasn't on there. Um, one of my sisters, Hannah, taught herself how to play the um, theme song from Titanic, the Celine Dion, My Heart Will Go On song. It took her two weeks. It was a very long two weeks for everybody else in the house. But she got it dialed in, and then she learned more songs, and then she got really good at piano, and she 
still plays piano to this day. She plays with her daughters, who are the age now that she was when this piano got brought home to our house. And I talked to my sister this week about the piano. I asked her what it meant to her. She said that piano was like everything to her as a kid. Because we were seven kids. There was like two bedrooms, one bathroom. It was not the Taj Mahal, but we did have this funky out-of-tune piano. And even so, when I think back uh, on that trip in my adult life, I always think like, why would my parents do that? Why would you go all that distance for some basically worthless musical uh, you know, apparatus? And it wasn't until yesterday I was driving down here to Pendleton, and I was driving on a lot of the same roads that we took to get here. I even saw places where we had stopped to refill the radiator on the van. <laughs> a lot of memories out there, people. It wasn't until I was driving back here, literally yesterday, that I had this realization, which probably a lot of you have already figured out, which was, I don't think the point of that trip for my parents was to get a free piano. I think the point of the trip was to get the family together, to take us on this weird adventure, to see a part of the world we hadn't seen, Eastern Oregon and Pendleton, and to just have an experience together. And what I realized was that if that was the plan, it worked perfectly. <laughs> because even now, I think back on that as being one of the absolute best two weeks of my entire life. So, good job, Mom and Dad. And, and I'm really happy to be back here in Eastern Oregon. Let's get our first guest out here. Our first guest is a Pendleton native who's really immersed himself in this town. For instance, these are the jobs he's had at one point or another. City council member, chair of the development commission, chair of the historical society, chair of the arts committee, first grade teacher, author of four books on Pendleton, member of the Landmarks Commission, and also he owns a general store in town. It turns out there is only one person who lives in Pendleton, and apparently it's Keith May, <laughs> which is why he has to do all the jobs. Please welcome Keith May to Livewire. Keith May, welcome to Livewire. Howdy. How did Pendleton become a city? Why was this spot chosen? Because it was on the beaten path. It was at the time. It was. The Oregon Trail came through here, and it was a crossing of the Umatilla River. So it was a perfect place to throw up a bridge, a saloon, and eventually 18 brothels and 32 saloons. So. Yeah, I want to get to that because what shocked me in reading your book about the history of Pendleton was how recently those brothels became illegal. Pretty recently, but let, let's talk about that in a minute. I, I want to also ask, because you can't talk about the history of Pendleton without talking about the history of the Native Americans who were here first. Talk about the Umatilla tribe and what the relationship between a lot of the white folks that came out here and the people who were Umatilla and other Native American populations here. Of course, they were here first. Uh, a reservation was created in 1855 of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla, Walla Walla, and Cayuse tribes. Uh, relationships were pretty good because there was a lot of horse racing going on between the tribal members and the city folks. A lot of betting going on horse races up and down Main Street. And that's seriously? Why we, seriously. And that's why our first church got delayed for four years. Because all the townsfolks lost their money to the Indians <laughs> at a race. Let's talk about when... Pendleton was kind of the entertainment capital of the Northwest. 
<laughs> this was around, you write in the book about 1902. There's like 6,000 people living here. Yeah. There are uh, 18 bordellos and t- about 32 saloons. That seems like a lot. One bordello per citizen seems high. What was going on? There were a lot of single guys around, let's put it that way. Between the cowboys, the sheep herders, the gold miners, the wheat harvest crews, a lot of single guys with money in their pockets. And it wasn't just the bordellos, there were pool halls and gambling going on and all sorts of fun activities. This was the place to go to spend your money. Uh, this is Live Wire Radio coming to you from the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton, Oregon. This week we have Keith May here, a local historian. In the 1940s, you wrote in the book that the mothers of the town of Pendleton <laughs> wanted to keep the brothels open because they were trying to protect their virginal daughters from the guys coming to the Air Force Base. Yep. How'd that go? <laughs> it went well. It, the brothels stayed open until 1954, technically. Yeah. So, talk a little bit about the uh, about the the roundup in Pendleton. Like, how did that get started, and how did it take off so much? The roundup is over 100 years old. It was the first rodeo that had queens and princesses, a, a court. When you have all those harvest crews and cowboys and people taking care of horses, and it's the fall, and you're done with harvest, it's time to party. And that's what the Roundup is. There are, you know, there are other places in Eastern Oregon and in the West in general that have a sort of claim to the, the Western cowboy heritage. What's special about this place? It's the center of the universe. <laughs> Pendleton has a strong sense of place. When you're in Pendleton, you know you're in Pendleton. You're not in Southern California. You're not in Hollywood. But the buildings here, the people here are unique. And it gives you a sense of place. Uh, you get that in other communities but everybody should be proud of their hometown. And I think Pendleton people are proud of their hometown. Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty unique. Keith May, thanks for telling us about it. Thank you so much. Keith May, ladies and gentlemen. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. Uh, We are coming to you from Pendleton, Oregon this week at the Slick Fork Saloon. We'll be back with more in just a minute. Livewire gets support from Fully in Portland, Oregon. What does Fully do? Well, they make furniture, chairs and desks and things like that, that actually keep your body moving because that's the healthy way to do it, people. In fact, would you believe that right now, even as I'm recording this, I am sitting on a TikTok from Fully. It is a cool rocking stool that keeps my body moving, keeps my brain engaged, and keeps from me turning into some kind of a lethargic potato, even though I'm doing my work. I also use a Jarvis standing desk from Foley when I'm recording Livewire on stage, and it helps me stay in motion and stay creative when I'm at work, which it turns out is hosting this show. So if you want to find out more about how Foley can help you have a more healthy life at work, whether it's in the office or at home, uh, check out their website, fully.com slash livewire. Welcome back to Livewire Radio from PRI. This week, we're at the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton, Oregon. And this episode of Livewire is sponsored by Pendleton Woolen Mills. Weaving fine fabrics in the USA for more than 150 years. More information available at pendletonusa.com. When we decided that this week's theme would be off the beaten path, we knew just who to call. 
a family outfit that spent the last couple of years roaming the country in a Winnebago looking for answers, answers to questions like, are guns dangerous? Why do we believe the stuff we believe? And what is a hippie? The questions are asked by twin eight-year-old girls, Dana and Vern Brunberg, and answered after they've gone on some kind of adventure with their dad, Jim. It's all recorded and ends up on their podcast, Rome Schooled. Please welcome, fresh off the dusty trail, Jim, Dana, and Vern Brunberg. Well, Jim, Dana, and Vern, welcome to Livewire. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, Jim, I'll start with you. Uh, where did the idea for Rome School actually come from? What was the exact moment when you thought, this could be a podcast? Well, I loved your story, first of all, and the, the true purpose of the trip. And uh, it, it came from a similar thing where I wasn't trying to make a radio show or a podcast. They started asking questions. I wrote down the questions, and it ended up involving a lot of traveling. And in doing it, it, it sort of accidentally became a podcast. Um, Dana, what is your favorite place that you've been so far doing the show? Yosemite. What did you guys do in Yosemite? We met a ranger with a broken arm. <laughs> and turns out he is an avid rock climber. So we ended up sort of crafting that episode around this narrative about how he takes risks. And on the way back from Yosemite, we went through Las Vegas because our maps were bad. And we met, we talked to as many random people who seemed to be taking risks as possible. Matter of fact, you're hey, on that show. You know what? Actually, I wanted to ask you about that. I'm, I'm going to read a description from that risk show uh, that you guys did for Rome School. Uh, we, we listened as risk takers, a trapeze artist, a habitual gambler, a naked DJ, an extreme rock climber, and a stuntman address just what is at stake in their risks. And what I remembered was, I talked to you about gambling for that show. Did you describe me as a habitual gambler? <laughs> I mean, it's true, but um, this is just a weird I way for me to find it out. I think it's a figure of speech, Luke. I, I think it has to do with the, the habit of risk that we all have. And the part that, where I can't stop. I think that's also yeah, that, part of it. And it's, we talked about the allure of taking a risk and gaining from it as opposed to regretting it. And we, but in all seriousness, that show ended up being about how we thought it was going to be called Risks and Regrets. And we always think we're going into one kind of theme or an episode with one idea, but it, it never stays that way. It ended up not being about risk and regrets. Uh, it ended up being about risk and rewards. We didn't meet anybody who had any regrets because of the risks they'd taken. We'd only met a few people who had regrets because they hadn't taken risks. And that was our takeaway from that. We're talking to Jim Brunberg and his twin daughters, Dana and Vern, about their podcast, Rome Schooled. Jim, what, what's your favorite place that you guys have been so far? What I love lately is that it's ended up bringing us back to Portland a lot. That's, our, that's where we live. And it's nice to talk about our own hometown and get to see things with new eyes. And when I say new eyes, I mean eight-year-old eyes. Uh, because when they ask questions, it's coming from that perspective where you, it's sort of, uh, it should be obvious why things are the way, they, the way they are, and you make assumptions about it. But then when you really look around, even in your home, own hometown, not, none of the assumptions that you've made that have just allowed you to put that book on the shelf end up being completely true. So everything gets reexamined, and for me, home has a new meaning. Are you guys able to do this just on summer break, or are you ever missing school to do Rome School stuff? Oh, we're missing, missing school. school. 
Well, I saw that you were written up, Jim. I saw that the show was written up as being like a kid cast. There was a news article about you guys saying, we knew they were going to start being more podcasts for kids because podcasts are so popular, and here's evidence of that. But you're saying it's not a podcast for kids. It's a podcast about the world that happens to have some kids in it. Yeah. It, it, I don't think of it as a show for kids at all, but there's some stuff that gets a little raunchy in our show. I don't have the filters up with these guys. After most interviews, we have a conversation about the things that they heard that may or may not be appropriate to take back to their friends and their school. Right, because you, I mean, you guys have talked to strippers. You've talked to habitual gamblers. You. I mean, you've... Yeah. I wear a lot of hats when I'm not hosting this show. No, but you guys get into some really, like, you have, you have I thought, a really, a really fascinating episode talking about, um, you know, basically death. And, like, these are intense topics. Are you, what's your thought process for exposing uh, Dana and Vern to... To stuff that stuff I shouldn't. Stuff like that. Well, <laughs> to stuff that you shouldn't. I prep our guests just in terms of, of uh, say what you would say to your own kids, if you have kids. But um, usually when they look at me and they say, I'm not sure if I should say this, I encourage them to go ahead. Because they've got something that they want to say, and merely prefacing it like that is their way, is the subject, the interviewee's uh, way of saying, well, this probably isn't appropriate, but it's the truth. So in that context, the, the, the kids know what's appropriate and what's not appropriate, what's going to work for them. I mean, they, they've got great teachers. If they show up in class and they're acting out on some idea that a stripper gave them when we were on the road, they're going to get set straight, and there's no way you're ever going to learn the rules unless you uh, meet the boundaries of what's right and what's inappropriate. So. By the way, we're talking to Jim Brunberg and Dana and Vern Brunberg, his twins, about their podcast, Romeschooled. I think, for me, the part about the show that's so kind of transcendent is just listening to the three of you talk, to listening to you guys have a relationship. And there was a moment that I thought was so perfect. It was where you were talking about some epidemiologist. They mentioned, oh, that guy's our godfather. <laughs> then you did an impression of the godfather. Then they said it sounds like somebody from Zootopia. And I looked it up, and it's <laughs> like a weasel doing an impression of Marlon Brando from the godfather on Zootopia. <laughs> it's like a circle. Yeah. <laughs> like, the, the, just the, I mean, whether or not the questions get answered to any satisfaction, I just really enjoy hearing you guys as a family do your thing. It's, it's fun. I mean, it's just, just us being us. We leave the, well, hopefully, the moments that cause some kind of connectivity for, if a family's listening, for example, they have a way to connect that Zootopia Godfather trilogy uh, connection, which, whatever it is, because these guys won't see the Godfather for a while. But they're, they're exposed to the other stuff, and we talk, we talk about it, and who was that character you were talking about in the Godfather, and we talk about the mafia, and it connects those things. Would you guys do this into your adulthood? Like, do you, or do you want to stop doing this when you're a teenager? Like, will it become embarrassing at some point? Um, I don't think I would do it, like, when I'm adult. You'll be ready for a break yeah. from your dad. It won't be from, a, like, a kid's perspective anymore. Ah, see? This is what happens on Rome School. There's we're, some obvious thing hanging out there, and the kids are the ones that figure it out. They, they know that we're going to age out of this. This is like happy days when the, they're not teenagers in high school anymore, and when the Fonz is a middle-aged guy living in the basement going, hey, yeah. and, and I'm trying to be the Fonz. It's just not charming or cool anymore. But. Yeah. It's still very charming and cool, and I highly recommend everybody check it out. The podcast is called Rome Schooled. Jim Brunberg, Vern Brunberg, Dana Brunberg, thank you.
Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, an airline with over 800 daily departures to over 100 cities, even to tropical unAlaskan lands like Costa Rica and Hawaii. And with a name like Alaska, you know their air conditioning will be on point. Alaska Airlines, fly nice. This is Livewire Radio. This week, our theme is off the beaten path, and for the past 14 years, our next guest has been breeding sheep in Lostein, Oregon. Her goal has been to come up with the perfect blend of wool, something so durable yet so soft you could make underwear out of it. Wool underwear, a dangerous game, but one June Colony isn't afraid of. Please welcome sheep rancher June Colony to Livewire. June, welcome to Livewire. Well, thanks for inviting me. We found out about you through a, a piece in the newspaper that was talking about what you've been doing breeding your sheep. And I, I'm going to start by saying I know basically nothing about sheep breeding, so you're going to have to bear with me on this. But can you tell me about the kind of sheep that you've been breeding? All right. The first one is an imported breed, Wensleydale from England. And it's a large breed between 200 and 300 pounds. And they produce between 15 and 20 pounds of wool each. But it has a characteristic of no itch because it's Kemp-free, meaning there's no short hairs. That's and, you know, Kemp? short hairs are always a problem. Yes, I do know that. <laughs> those, those shorter hairs can be quite troublesome. So you showed me a picture of this particular kind of sheep, and what came to my mind was the funk singer Rick James. It Imagine is. that as a sheep. That's kind it of what is. they look like. So then what's the other kind of sheep that you've been working with? Well, the, the other side of it is uh, Targi. It is a fine wool, descendant of the Merino, Rambouillet. It has the ability to just exist out in the middle of nowhere. The wool is so soft that uh, it's in high demand. Okay, so you have been crossbreeding these sheep for how long? Well, it's a funny story. <laughs> because originally, um, I had nothing to do with this. But my neighbor had developed this program, had purebreds, Wensleydales and Targies. And she'd only been in it for two years when her husband wanted to leave. So she gave me these sheep. And I'm looking at them thinking, what are these? What do I do with the wool? So I wrote a, a grant application through the USDA and was awarded a small grant, about $28,000, to look at it for, from a business standpoint. Meanwhile, I've just got fields of sheep I'm trying to crossbreed and teach yeah, myself. Yeah, how does that go, by the way? Do you just put on some soft music? And no. You know what was funny? My shearer at the time was a, was a local man. And I said, I want to do this. How do I do it? And he says, well, first thing you do is you only pick the pretty ones. <laughs> you only pick the pretty ones. And so it's like, what is pretty to me? Wait, There's wait, wait. That wasn't a joke? You were no. trying to actually pick the prettiest sheep you, so you that they would the mate? You pick the pretty ones. You pick the pretty... Oh, well, mating is not a problem. Keeping them from mating is a bigger problem. <laughs> Than mating. We're talking to June Colony, by the way, who is... Uh, would, do you go by sheep rancher or sheep breeder? What's the proper way to describe what you're doing? I'm a farmer. Farmer. Right, in, I'm a farmer. In Lostine, Oregon. Right, I'm a farmer. All right. But you've been, you've, been breeding these, you've been breeding these sheep that have different characteristics for their wool to get yes. to a, a specific kind of outcome. Um, 
if this works, because you're going to start your own breed, it's called the, the Colony Cross. The Colony Cross. What's going to be so great about this particular wool? Well, if you look at it in terms of microns, which is how you determine whether or not it's an innerwear or an outerwear product, the Targis have a micron, which is a diameter, like a hair, the diameter of it, anywhere between 21 and 25. The Wensleydales are 32 to 38, which is a coarser one. So I The Rick James ones for the people Rick James ones. at home trying to visualize. Right, that's right. What I've succeeded in doing in the last couple of years is I now have a sheep that is a micron between 26 and 32. So that is my sweet spot. And they tell Only me... Only in Pendleton does that get it. I know. A murmur of appreciation you know I mean. from the crowd, yeah. right? You know, you might as well have, have said that you, you, know, you figured out a cow that would barbecue itself or something. I know. People I here, know. they knew what you were talking about. They, I'm sure a lot of them do. Yeah. We have June Colony here, who is a farmer and also a sheep rancher in uh, Lostine, Oregon. This is Livewire Radio from PRI, by the way, for anybody just joining us. Like, do the sheep enjoy being sheared or well, do they hate it? Do you know... Thank you for asking me this question, because I experienced when I was herding, and the men are all sharing, and they're bringing them, and they're throwing them on their butts, and they're just giving them a hard time, and they're unhappy. At my house, at my farm, they come in, I have feed, they stand as I sit next to them and shear them, and I take it off in blankets, I take it off in sections, because each part of the sheep has a different kind of wool. Oh, right? I didn't know that. And so I take it off in sections, and I, so I'm grading it as I go. I also wash my sheep before I do it. So it's just me and the girls hanging out. <laughs> right? No trauma. If I want my sheep to come in, I go, come here, you guys. <laughs> and they all come. This is like a feminist utopia. Right, right. It is. It is. So they come, and they stand, and I share them, and then they go on back to their field life. Is there something about this part of the country that's particularly well-suited for doing sheep and wool and stuff? Of course, you got Pendleton Mills based out of here, which is legendary. Like, what's going on in Oregon vis-a-vis -vis wool and sheep? We have fantastic grass, and so it's a, it's a beautiful green farm with beautiful sheep and beautiful mountains, and it's a rough place to work. What's that like for you to be out in that environment you just described, doing really hard work, but doing it in a really beautiful place? Is that when you feel the most alive and centered and at peace and all of those things? Well, you know that from the sound of music, that picture of her spinning around yeah, on the, the top hills, of the mountain? The hills are alive. I do that. <laughs> June Colony, everybody. Hey there, it's Luke letting you know that it is the Livewire Spring Membership Drive time and that we are looking to raise 10000 bucks before June the 4th. Why do you guys need 10000 bucks? you're asking yourself right now. It's because we are an independently produced radio show and we're a non-profit. So we're basically just kind of pulling this thing together week in and week out. And a big part of how we are able to pull it together is support from our listeners. So if you enjoy this podcast, if you enjoy the Livewire radio show, if you want it to keep going, 
this would be a great time to help support it. You go to our website, and if you want to donate, say, $10 a month, that would do an immense amount of good in helping us keep the show going. It's not a whole lot of money on a monthly basis, 10 bucks, but if enough people commit to doing that, we really will be able to keep things rolling here at Livewire Central. And if you donate by June 4th, you're going to get an awesome thank you gift. It's a limited edition Livewire tote bag designed by Portland graphic artist Olivia Storm. Here's how you can do it. Go to livewireradio.org and donate online, or you can click on the little link in the bio of this very podcast that you're listening to. I promise you it's only going to take a second, and it will make a huge difference for us. Thank you so much. This is Livewire Radio coming to you this week from Pendleton, Oregon. We're at the Slick Fork Saloon. Our next guest grew up not far from here on the Umatilla Reservation, where he still creates his art every day. As a kid, James Lavador wasn't conventionally a great student, but he did have a fascination with painting. His inspiration, among other things, was the peeling and water-stained ceiling of his grandma's house, which he's described as being a sort of Sistine Chapel for him. That idea of layers, as well as the geography of Eastern Oregon, have played a major role in Lavador's work, which has appeared all over the country and the Northwest, and even the Northwest of Italy, at the extremely prestigious Venice Biennale. Please welcome James Lavador to Livewire. Welcome to Livewire. Thank you very much. Do you remember the first thing that you painted that you felt really proud of? Uh, no, I don't. I, I, Next question. <laughs> when did you start to get a sense that, that, that painting was a thing you wanted to do? How about well, that? Well, I've always made things. Um, it's been a, a fascination for me uh, since I was a child. Painting, taking tinfoil and smashing it up and making figures uh, and looking at stuff. I, I think looking at things more than, than anything. What, what, was your, uh, what was your childhood like growing up around here? I lived with my grandmother. Uh, she and, of the Sistine Chapel? Yes. Ceiling yeah, she had a very old, uh, rickety old house. She was uh, not expecting children at, at her age. She used to keep me occupied with typing paper and watercolor paints, and uh, that's really where I got started was from my grandmother. But as a young child, were you creating things that were sort of abstract art, or were you just drawing, you know, uh, Superman or something, kid stuff? No, I was more interested in the process of things, how things work, you know, stains and looking at water stains and, and uh, just the natural phenomena around where I lived. Uh, my cousins, myself, and uh, there was a gang of us that lived there. And so, you know, it we sounds used like to... a very arty gang. Well, it was a Look at the way gig. the wind moves through the trees, boys. <laughs> I mean, like, were you kind of a, 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 forgive me for asking, were you kind of a weird kid that you were noticing this stuff? Uh, yeah, I, I was. I was very introverted. Uh, I still am, so. And so when did you start to think that, that art could be something that you could do for your life? Like you could actually be an artist as opposed to it being a hobby or something you just thought was cool? Well, I, I've been occupied with it my entire life, and it, it's really how I navigated in the world. It brought, got me attention when I was young. You know, it, it's a different world living on the reservation than living in town. 
And well, what's so, different about, about growing up on a, on a reservation? Well, it, it's a whole different culture, number one. Uh, most of our activities happened in the mountains. You know, we spent a lot of time. My family uh, were hunters, my father and uncle, when they came home from World War II. You know, there were no jobs. And um, so subsistence hunting and being in the mountains was still a very important thing. We did that. Like you, you were, at least at times, your family was essentially living off the land in the yes, most literal yeah, sense. Yeah. How did that inform the kind of art that you make? Well, it's primary to what I do. My art is about the land itself. The land, what's in the land is in me, and what's in me is the big question. What's, what of me is in the land? And so I uh, hike in the canyons up around here, and I would find like a log jam with a branch hanging out. And I was thinking about water one time, trying to figure out how to do water. And I grabbed a hold of the branch, and I realized the water the energy of the water was being transmitted up through the stick into my hand, and, and I realized that it's energy, you know. Then I, that's how I started my whole uh, artistic theory. But how do you translate this idea of, okay, water is energy, and you can feel it on the end of that stick, then what do you do as a, as a painter or an artist with that information? Like when you go back to your studio, what does that look like? Well, it's very abstract. You know, I, I'd take a big sheet of paper and just pour paint out onto it and take the paper and swirl it around. And I begin to realize that the patterns that happen uh, on the paper, the erosion, the, the uh, hydraulic sedimentation, all those things were a microcosm of, of the mountains themselves, the streams and, and the rivers. And so that became my main focus. It was understanding something about the world that the land and I are one. And that was a very traditional idea where I come from. I love the land. I love this country, and um, uh, this is beautiful, beautiful country, and um, um, everything about it. But I realized it also has a very deep resonance uh, because of the generations and generations and generations of people that have lived here and uh, where uh, my family came from. So, and I, I think that painting is a way of harvesting like something from the land itself. You know, that, that it's good. You know, it's a good thing, that transfiguration from uh, that experience of engaging with the land, looking at it, laying down on the land, walking, hunting, eating, drinking uh, the water, eating the roots and picking the berries. You know, uh, all that is good. It's sustenance. And I, that's how I think of painting itself, that it's uh, an expression of that, that energy, that sustenance of, of existence. I've read that yeah. you have between 50 and 100 paintings going at the same time. More, really. Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, uh, 100, that's not enough. Let's get that number up to 200 if we can. Well, uh, yeah, kind of like that. So what's an average day look like for you? Well, I, I get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. I try to sleep in, but I can't. So I love uh, getting up right out of bed, kind of out of the dream state into uh, a creative state. Do you I, make coffee? Works. At oh, three yeah. in the morning? Yes, yeah. I get up and I feed the animals. I have a dog and a cat, and I make coffee. I feed them, and I, I make <laughs> My dog coffee. has to wait till like, 11 a.m. when yeah. I'm up. <laughs> it's like, can we move yeah. to James's house? Because yeah. they're getting fed at 3 a.m. This is great. Okay, so then you, you make the coffee. You go into your studio. I start work, and um, it's usually a, it's a one thing at a time. 
one color at a time. You know, like I, I have uh, maybe a 10 paintings going, and I, it's just yellow. I do yellow that day, and, and then I put it into the corner. They're all very abstract. And so, you're, so you're adding this particular color of yellow to each of the, of the canvases uh, Maybe to each of but I have 100 panels you know, in the studio, all stacked up or more. And so I, I sift through them, and I find one that it's applicable to. You know, it's like the paintings I'm working on now, I started maybe five to 10 years ago. And so the paintings I'm exhibiting, you know, every year there's maybe 15, 20 paintings that, that conclude, I guess, or, or resolve. This is, I mean, I already know this is a stupid question, but I'm still going to ask. When do you know when it's done? Well, I don't, really. It's, uh, <laughs> I knew this was a stupid yeah, question. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it appears, you know, something occurs to me, you know, the insight to whatever it is. You know, it's layer upon layer upon layer upon layer, day after day after day, and it builds up this, this mass, this uh, dynamic mass that I, I tried to put on a layer so the, what's underneath comes through in one fashion and or another. And you'll remove layers too sometimes, right? Yeah, you'll scrape yeah. and stuff. I mean, so you'll create this really interesting texture. Right. Paintings, when they're in process, there's no top or bottom. I'm flipping them so the paint can drip upside down and turning them sideways. And is, is that uh, your process, or is that just a known thing amongst painters? Because actually it would have never occurred to me that there isn't a top or bottom. Well, it's, it's, it's a phenomena. You know, the, the stains and, and the, uh, the, the layers, they, they create this, this mass, and out of the mass comes form. And that form is always landscape. It's kind of like a, a vortex. You know, it, it's going round and round and round and round. It's flow, just like a water flowing down the hill. And uh, so I can start 10 paintings, and they all end up in different places uh, wow. with a different thing. But a painting is a thing to look at. You know, it's, it's not necessarily a representation or a depiction or, or you know, a statement or you know, a symbol. It, it is a, a phenomena, you know, to examine and to contemplate. I have so much more I want to ask you, but we have to take a very short break, so let's do that. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. We're at the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton, Oregon. We're talking to James Lavador back in a moment. Hey, it's Luke again. We want to say a special thanks this week to Katie Russell from Portland, Oregon, and Laura Mayhook from La Center, Washington. Katie and Laura both made the decision to support Livewire during our spring membership drive of last year, and that's what got us to this point, folks. So we're hoping all of you will follow their lead and sign up to donate to Livewire today. Again, we're in our spring membership drive. We're trying to raise 10000 bucks by June the 4th, and we could really use your help. Here's how you can do that. Go to livewireradio.org or click on the link in the podcast bio. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're at the Slick Fork Saloon in Pendleton, Oregon. We have artist and painter James Lavador here, who is one of the co-founders of the Crow's Shadow Institute uh, on the Umatilla Reservation. Uh, what's the mission of Crow's Shadow? Crow's Shadow is to provide social, economic, and educational opportunities to Native Americans through artistic development. That's our, our mission. This is our 25th anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah. 
it's really incredible what you have all been able to accomplish with Crow's Shadow, and it's something that's known throughout the art community and throughout the Native American community. Has it gotten bigger than you expected it to get? No, I, I really did expect it really? to get big. Yes, yeah, it's, it's well, a good, good idea. Yeah, yeah. So this is like that's what much we've been working for. That's where you figured it would end up. Yeah. Yes. It is. There was a need for it. On the reservation here, there uh, were a lot of artists. And in my generation, usually the, the main place was the Institute of American Indian Art in Santa Fe. It's where everybody went. But they came back home, and there's nowhere to go from there. And so I had been invited to go to Rutgers University to make prints. And Rutgers had a program of using printmaking to reach out into the world and bring artists from all over the world to Rutgers to make prints. And I thought, well... Heck, it's a great model, so and that's what I based it on. You had a piece that was featured in the Venice Biennale. Yes. Which is, for people that don't know, huge. It's like the Olympics of art. That's like, what it is, yeah. I mean, it's extremely, extremely prestigious. And I listened to this radio piece that you did on OPB when it was announced that your piece was going to be at the Biennale, and what I thought was fascinating was that you were debating whether or not to go to Italy to see this because <laughs> no. you didn't want it to interrupt your painting. Yes, that's true. Well, the older I get, the more I paint. And that's what I do right now. I'm 65, and uh, I, I just feel like this uh, days are numbered. <laughs> you know? And I've got a lot of work to do. I admire you know, like Asian artists, uh, Chinese, the old Chinese artists. You know, as they got older, you know, that's when it all came together. You know, all this experience of living, that's when it comes together. And so... So this is peak James Lavador right now. Right now. This is yeah. it. <laughs> You're like a fine wine. <laughs> and you don't want to go wasted. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to waste a drop. Well, we don't want to take up much more of your time. James Lavador, everybody. Thank you. But we do need to take up just two more minutes of your time. <laughs> James Lavador, you are a painter, and so working with color is obviously uh, what oh you God. do. And, and as we've learned, you're working sometimes on maybe hundreds of paintings at a time with all these different colors. But there is a world of color that we think you might not be as familiar with, and that is the wild world of actual nail polish colors. Yes, right. Hey, I don't we, know anything We about have that. a list here of real nail polish names, and then we also have some that we made up. All right. I'm gonna read you a list, and you're gonna have to decide what are real nail polish colors actually for sale in the United States, and which oh are ones God. we just weirdly made up. All right. It's a little game we're calling Nail That Color. Which are the true colors shining you ever listen to Cindy right. Lauper when you're out there in the studio at 3 a.m.? I have. All actually, right. So. All right, James Lavador, some of these are real and some of these are made up. How about a color called Ants in My Pants? <laughs> um, sure, why not? Do you, yes. What color do you think Ants in My Pants would be I don't as know. a nail ants polish my color? Pants. I don't know. I, color does not come to mind. Uh, <laughs> uh, my favorite color is red, so I'll say red. You are absolutely right, James Lavador. All right. It is real. It is a sheer red polish with large red pieces of glitter mixed in to evoke fire ants. Wow. All right, how about this? Is this a, a real nail polish color or one we made up? 
Holla if you need me. That's it? Holla if you need me. Holla. Like the bread. Holla if you need oh, wait, me. Wait, wait, wait. Do you think it's know. real or fake? Let's, let's go fake. You're absolutely right. Okay. It is made up. We were going to tell you it's a light <laughs> orange color with an eggshell white top to represent the egg wash on challah bread. Uh, but okay. we actually made it up. How about the audacity of taupe? I don't know. I, uh, uh, it's it's uh, fake. It is fake. We did okay. make that All one right. up. All right. Wouldn't that be great, though? I mean, on so many levels, if there was a nail polish called the audacity of taupe. <laughs> Here's another one. How about lemonade stand by your man? Uh, well, that could be real. Uh, well, it'd have to be some sort of yellow, right? God, when you're right, you're right, Lavador. It is real, and it's... Absolutely yellow. May or may not have been worn by Beyonce, but it is uh, a real nail polish color. You were like, I think you were undefeated in that game. James Lavador, wow. everybody. Thank you. All right, this is Live Wire Radio coming to you from Pendleton, Oregon. This episode is sponsored by Pendleton Woolen Mills, creators of world-famous wool blankets, merino wool clothing, and southwestern decor, all woven right here in the USA since 1863. More information at PendletonUSA.com. Our musical guest this hour has spent much of his life off the beaten path, driving truck, crabbing, farming, you name it, he's done it, and he's brought his guitar along the whole way. Please welcome local legend from nearby Athena, Oregon, Rod Bonifer to Livewire. And Rod, you've got uh, Jim White with you as well. We, when we have musical acts on the show, we typically will get some kind of uh, you know preview material from them. We'll get a CD or a audio file or, or, or cassette tape or something. Because this is Eastern Oregon, you just sang into the phone for our executive producer. I've heard that you've done a little yodeling in your day. A little bit. Okay. Uh, care to give us an example? And also, yeah, is there like a, a two-minute yodeling tutorial you can give me? I can. First, we have to get you, if you can remember, you may have been too young, but we remember uh, Tarzan? Sure. So we have to go with your falsetto. Just learn how to put the notes together. Howdy, lay, lay, lay. Ooh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I need a lay, lay, lay. All right. <laughs> Look, I'm not exactly Jimmy Rogers. <laughs> Is there a karaoke night somewhere in Pendleton? Can I break out my. How much yodeling happens at the local karaoke scene? You're going to be a hit no matter where you go, Luke. <laughs> All right, Rod, what song are we going to hear? So we call it The Legends, and it's about uh, Pendleton Roundup in the early days, how it got started, and just uh, kind of a little flavorful thing. All right, this is Rod Bonifer and Jimmy White here on Livewire Radio from Pendleton. Ooh, 
turn of the century About 1910 Some local folks put on a rodeo show And a string of legends began They came from north of the border Drifted in from deep in the south from east and west, the contest at the best. And when they left, they left no doubt. And the riders started coming. The people gathered around to watch these living legends lay their money down. Riders come to win or fall With smoke and fire in their hearts A contest to be the best It's a given from the start Memories come and memories fade But legends, they live on Hundreds ride but only one Another legend is born And the riders started coming The people gathered round To watch these living legends Lay their money down A hundred years have come and gone And the time has come once more the stakes are high and hoes will fly and the heavens will hear the roar. Thousands rise in the stands and toast among rowdy friends. And when the cannon roars, they'll raise their glasses high as the legends ride again. And the riders started coming. The people gathered round to watch the living legends lay their money down. Oh, oh, Heck Thank yeah. you, Jimmy. Rod Bonifer and Jimmy White here on Livewire Radio. That's it for our show tonight. Let's tell you who helped make it all happen. Big thanks to our guests, James Lavador, Jim Brunberg and his daughters Vern and Dana from Rome School, June Colony, Keith May, and Rod Bonifer and Jimmy White. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines and Fully, Hotel accommodations provided by Provenance Hotels. This show is sponsored by Pendleton Woolen Mills. Special thanks to the Bishop family, Molly Cliff Hiltz, Dave Hiltz, Hallie and Rick Sadel, and Eileen Brady and Brian Roeder. Thanks also to Jan McGregor and all the folks here at the Slick Fork Saloon. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. Becky Fogel is our associate producer. 
Jason Rouse is our announcer. Caitlin Kunkel wrote for the show. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Ethan Fox Tucker, and Jonathan Newsom. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Kyle Woodrow did our house sound and recording. Big thanks to Carlson Audio. Livewire is made possible by the support of our members. Special thanks this week to member Judy Sharman of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show, head over to livewireradio.org. My name's Luke Burbank. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. PRI Public Radio International.